0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. On this episode of the show, I spoke with Ananta Ripa Ajmera and um, Ananta is really fascinating. She uh, recently wrote a book um on Ayurveda called The Way of the Goddess. And uh, I was really happy to have her on. For a long time, I've been wanting to bring on someone onto this podcast to speak about Ayurveda, which is a, a, an ancient uh, Vedic or Indian uh, philosophical medicine system. Uh, as she said, it comes from uh, two words, Arya and, and Veda meaning the knowledge or the science of life. And um, I I think it's a really beautiful system. It's uh, something when I started Learning about plants and medicine and philosophy and religion and spirituality, it was one of the things that really influenced me, uh, their use of plants, the, 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 the use of the Vedas, and just the amazing knowledge in the Vedas. So it's a really beautiful path. Uh, there, there's a lot of wisdom there. And so I was really happy to have to come on and speak uh, about Ayurveda, about yoga, and about uh, Vedanta and Vedantic thought and philosophy. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Um, myself and my colleague Murav Artsy uh, we're back in Peru now in the Sacred Valley of the Incas and um, probably when this comes out we'll already be running our first dieta of September Um, but there is still uh, I believe uh, space left uh, for the September and October diets. So if that's something you're interested in, uh, working with plants, with plant medicine, with the, the, the process of doing a dieta, of going into isolation, and directly learning from the, the incredible wisdom of these plants, that's a really beautiful opportunity. Uh, you can check out my website at nicotianarustica.org and also my friend and colleague, Murav's site at tobaccodiets.com. Um, As always, if you're able to help to support this show, that's a really big help to me uh Patreon is a really good option it's a subscription service for as little as a dollar a month you can sign up there's different tiers you can sign up for um, and i i really like the idea of of platforms like that uh really working on on reciprocity so if you feel like you're gaining from something from these podcasts and and you feel that call to give back uh that's a really beautiful option to all of the people who have done that to all the patrons as always thank you very much for all of your your support your continued support um, it's really all of you who keep the show going. Um, if you're not able to do that and you're listening on the YouTube channel, uh, as always, some of the really simple things really help with the algorithms to getting the show out to a bigger audience. So um, hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bell, liking the videos, leaving any questions or comment in the comments section, sharing the show, uh, and then with the audio version on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you're listening uh, subscribing to the show um, and with Apple Podcasts and also Spotify now you can leave a starred rating and with Apple Podcasts I think a a short review as well so um, I think that's it Um, let's see uh, my next guest coming on um, I have a really interesting woman she's a Peruvian scientist who is doing research on one of the boiling rivers in the Peruvian Amazon um, uh, looking at the microbial life and that there's just uh, some fascinating research that's going on. So she's going to be on. Uh, and then another guy who was recommended to me named uh, Thomas and uh, Thomas Fryman, I believe is his name. Uh, Guy's done a lot of work with plant medicines. Uh, he's facilitated. Uh, I think he just finished his doctorate at Columbia uh, and also just did a, a an Iboga Buiti initiation. So that should be a really fascinating conversation as well. Um, and then I think another lady named, a uh, German lady named Bettina, who is highly recommended to me, um, and she seems like a, a very fascinating character as well, so there should be some really guests, uh, good guests coming up, and uh, I think that's it for the introduction, and without further ado, here is my conversation with Ananda. Running out from the maze, running out from the maze, running out of the maze, today, running from the mace from the Maze Running up from the Maze to die from the Maze Running up from the Maze Run out of the Maze to die Well great, well welcome. Uh, it's really nice to have you. We we were talking a little bit before we started, but um the The podcast really it, it focuses a lot on um, spirituality, medicines, uh, kind of an emphasis on plant medicines and in different traditions. And it, one of the things that started me on my journey was actually a, a fascination with plants, plants as medicine. And one of the first things I began learning about was actually Ayurveda because it's it's you know kind of one of the the major principles. I I spent some time in India and I remember. Um, I got like a really bad skin rash. And I I went to this area of Ada clinic and um, it was amazing. It was like going back in time that there's this like kind of old man there sitting there and he had all these, uh, herbs and plants, and he would make these little balls and prescribe them and do a pulse diagnostic. And I was really young at the time, and it was fascinating. Um, And then when I kind of started on this plant medicine journey, it was one of the things I really began to become interested in was this really kind of old ancestral knowledge that I think you find in in so many traditions around the world, uh, similar to like traditional Chinese medicine and so it was also really a pleasure for me to the last few days begin reading and researching again about Ayurveda because it's uh, something I, I, I did, but it was probably like 20 years ago. So I had forgotten a lot of things. And so it was really fascinating um, uh, reading up on some of that stuff to prepare for this. So maybe to start, you could just introduce yourself and who you are, where you come from, your background and, and what got you interested in, in Ayurveda.
1: Sure, thank you. My name is Ananta Ripa Ajamera. I am the founder and CEO of The Ancient Way, which is an organization that is bringing together different healing modalities from ancient wisdom traditions to be able to support us to actually live by the wisdom in our day-to-day lives. It's rooted in the wisdom of Ayurveda along with its sister sciences of yoga and Vedanta. Vedanta is a universal spiritual philosophy that underlies both yoga and Ayurveda. I have also just published my second book, which is called The Way of the Goddess, Daily Rituals to Awaken Your Inner Warrior and Discover Your True Self. And I got interested in Ayurveda originally because of my own health issues. I was really looking for a solution to my own problems. I knew that there had to be something beyond the physical to help me through the eating disorders that I was having. And then I kind of pulled myself out of that. I didn't have to get hospitalized or have any of those kind of extreme cases that can happen in situations where people have eating disorders. So I was fortunate in that sense, but definitely the underlying causes or issues that I had that led to that were not yet resolved. And I was told by Western medicine that I was in excellent health, but I didn't feel that not being able to sleep at night, feeling anxious all the time, having digestive issues and generally not being at ease or at peace was really that healthy. So I knew I needed something beyond the conventional Western approach. I did a lot of research, starting from high school itself actually, about different healing modalities. I had gone to a library and took out books on eating disorders, what causes them and just understanding the problem it was helpful to understand the problem to learn about western kind of ideas of psychology and and things like that but then i'm like okay great so i understand my problem now then i tried going to talk therapy and talking my problems out and definitely there was some therapeutic benefit to doing that and unearthing some things with the support of a really kind and compassionate therapist But then I wondered, what do I do about my digestion? And why can't I still sleep at night? And how come my energy is so low? If this is just resolving one thing for me or giving me a certain kind of relief, but also making me wish I could have more sessions with the therapist, then still I need something That's going to address all parts of me. So I kept going with it. I would go on online forums. I tried different kinds of diets out. I went to yoga classes. Yoga seemed to get a lot closer because yoga was explained to me as a path to unite with your true self and to learn to live a life of service, which really appealed to me because that's what I always wanted to do it was really helpful and i felt really good every time i was on the yoga mat and for the time after being on the yoga mat but i also felt that i needed that in every moment somehow so it was actually through yoga and taking a yoga teacher training course in kerala that i got to experience the ayurveda lifestyle waking up early before the sunrise eating meals at certain times eating certain kinds of foods having a rhythm and a routine to my daily life that I really never had before. And I just felt, even after a few days of being there in South India, that this is how I want to live. This lifestyle and this kind of food actually makes me feel much more peaceful and grounded and content within myself without anything external. So I wanted to know how can I be able to recreate this experience that I'm having in South India in the United States or anywhere where I go. So that was really how I got interested through my own issues and then how I got introduced to it, which was really experientially.
0: Yeah, great. <clears throat> and that, I think a lot of people, they, they probably heard of the word Ayurveda or they they may have some idea about it. But how would you how would you describe Ayurveda to, to someone who really isn't that familiar with it?
1: Ayurveda is the world's oldest system of health and healing. It is a holistic system and the sister science of yoga. Ayurveda basically gives you the lifestyle to take your yoga practice off the mat and into your day to day life. Ayurveda itself is a Sanskrit word which comes from two root Sanskrit words, ayush, which means life, and veda, which means the knowledge or study of. So taken together, Ayurveda is literally the knowledge or study of life itself. Ayurveda looks at each and every aspect of one's life in order to help us to come into a state of balance within our being health is equal to balance. And we're looking for a balance uh, in all aspects of our life, with our five senses, with our environment, with our relationships, with our food, and especially with our mind, because our mind and what goes on in our mind manifests in our physical body.
0: I think for a lot of people, this idea of Because often Ayurveda can be described as a as a holistic medicine system because mm-hmm. it's taking the the person as a whole, and and as mm-hmm. you described all of these different aspects, and I think that resonates more and more with a lot of people. A lot of people realize that 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 is important, <clears throat> but I think it's it, it can also seem quite daunting because it means there's yeah. not necessarily a standard remedy. There's not just a pill that you can take and all of your yeah. problems go away. <laughs> so what? What are the, maybe you could say like the pillars or, or, or the different aspects of, of someone's life that, that Ayurveda looks at um, that actually says like this has an impact on your your health, your well-being, your, um, because even this idea of holistic or, or like yoga, you know, it's this idea of union, of, of, mm-hmm. of harmony, of uh, a state of ease so that we're not in dis um, mm-hmm. but, but a person's life is very whole. It's very complex. There are a lot of uh, parts to that. So what are what are the some of the main things that Ayurveda looks at in a person when determining um, like is this person in balance?
1: So Ayurveda has a foundational principle called the doshas, which are bioforces. That are made up of the five great elements in different combinations. The five great elements are space, air, fire, water, and earth, and they combine together to form three different doshas or bioforces that affect our mind and body. One dosha is called Vata dosha, and that is <coughs> made up of air and space elements. And then the Excuse me, (laughs) I had a little something there. Then there's the pitta dosha, which is made up of fire encased in water. And then there's the kapha dosha, which is made up of earth and water. And when these doshas go out of balance in our body or in our mind, or usually both, then we have dis-ease and we are trying to bring all of these elements into a state of balance we all have all five but the proportion at which we have them varies from person to person and within a person even from season to season so ayurveda gives us a designer daily lifestyle and a seasonal lifestyle with certain core principles that most people can follow to protect their health and prevent disease. Then in addition to uh, working with the doshas and working with the daily routines and the seasonal routines, we have three sub-pillars of overall health, which are food, sleep, and what is known as brahmacharya, which I go into in a lot of detail in the second chapter of my new book. Brahmacharya, people think is just abstinence, but it's actually a lot more than that. It's really about regulation of all of our senses and having a balance in terms of what kind of inputs we're taking in to our senses as the doorways through which we are perceiving and understanding the world around us. We want to really make sure that we're not eating too much or too little. We're not talking too much and listening too little or the other way around. We want to be mindful of what it is we're taking in through our eyes, through our nose, through our ears, through our tongue, through our skin, and really ensure that those inputs are of the highest quality possible. We also have this idea in Ayurveda, as well as yoga, psychology, and the spiritual philosophy of Vedanta is where it originates, of there being three main qualities to all of life. And these are the qualities of inertia, or darkness right when we feel kind of lethargic depressed heavy emotions or heavy physically it's a quality called inertia which is called tamas in sanskrit then we have a quality of agitation passion action movement excitement stimulation and we can increase this with really spicy food for example and with chips and salty crackers and things like that candies will make us feel that kind of rush of excitement. And this excited, moving, passionate quality is called rajas. And then the third quality that is described is that of sattva. Sattva comes from the root word sat, which means truth. And it is our true state of our mind. Underneath all the layers of things that come over our true nature, we are sattva we are that pure peaceful balanced calm self and we are in the sattvic state having a perfect balance between rest or tamas and action which is rajas in the sattva state we are feeling connected to our core we're feeling happy and harmonious from within ourselves it's the most spiritual of the three qualities And there are certain foods that also bring about that quality of sattva in our mind. And there are certain foods that make us feel heavy. There are certain foods that make us feel agitated. There's also certain lifestyle practices that bring about these kinds of qualities. So for mental health and also for physical health, we're looking to cultivate this quality of purity, clarity, harmony, peace, balance. And that is called sattva.
0: So when, <clears throat> when someone, uh, if someone is feeling uh, unwell or n- not at ease, it kind, kind of like you were describing when you went to the, the, the Western allopathic doctor and it seemed like things weren't helping, what does that process look like when someone goes to an Ayurvedic doctor? How is that doctor diagnosing them, or uh, are they asking questions into their lifestyle to see where and what is out of balance, how how does that usually look?
1: Yeah, the intake form for an Ayurveda (laughs) practitioner is pretty intense because it doesn't leave any corner unturned. It asks you pretty much everything about you that you may not have even really thought about before, from the time you're waking up to the kinds of foods you eat to the time you eat your foods to the time you bathe, how often you bathe to the kind of work that you do, to the hobbies that you have, to the environment that you're in. It asks you about any unusual stress going on in your relationships, how connected you feel to your purpose in life and how connected you feel to your true self, to God, to nature. Uh, It really just is so thorough and exhaustive actually to be able to understand all possible dimensions of a person and what could be contributing to their feeling of not being in harmony with themselves. So it really is a very intensive process, usually like 13 page long inventory, just to get to know a person because we really have to get to know a whole person, their situation, all the ins and outs of it in order to be able to give the most meaningful recommendations for them
0: and then from there after that diagnosis it's a process of uh, recommending certain dietary changes certain lifestyle changes potentially adding plant remedies to that Um, Mm
1: -hmm. yeah yeah it's all of that for sure and often we recommend oiling the body every day as a health prevention practice which rejuvenates your skin and gives you energy and protects your immunity and skin barrier from outside forces coming in. That's when you're relatively healthy, when you're digesting your food, when you're able to eliminate regularly every day, that's when that is recommended. And you would do that before you take a shower on a relatively empty stomach and Then you take a warm shower, so the warmth of the water actually allows that oil to get better absorbed into your skin. And then we can also infuse those oils with herbs and with plants to have an even more therapeutic benefit for you. And we also will recommend home remedies that you can make in your kitchen for specific issues that a person may have, like for say for a lot of headaches, for example, we would make a paste out of saffron and milk and apply that, or ghee rather, clarified butter, and you can apply that directly to wherever you're having a headache. Then we would also potentially do some herbal remedies, which are usually combinations of different Ayurvedic herbs in a certain proportion to help further balance the body and mind. Usually we don't give herbs like that. However, unless a person is already having a good foundation of a regular lifestyle that's living in harmony with nature and also following a seasonal diet. We are recommended different foods actually for different times of the year, usually according to what is naturally available in local farmer's markets, and it's just constantly evolving. So what a person needs is different depending on the time of year it is too. And it's important to keep up with it so that you know what changes to make just due to this change in the season, from season to season, and how to slowly transition from the needs of one season to those of another season. So it's really interesting because in my book, it's about the Navratri Goddess Festival. And people often celebrate this throughout the world wherever there's Indian people with a lot of fanfare and costumes and celebration and dancing and music. and it's a lot of fun. But the origin the original purpose of this festival was to actually help people ritualistically, transition from the food and lifestyle requirements of one season to those of the next season and to make it a fun experience and to give a lot of spiritual support around the natural transitions of life because whenever there's a change or transition in life we humans feel vulnerable we need support we need some extra love and care and therefore these festivals were created to help us navigate those transitions with a lot more feeling of support and stability and connection to our most innermost self, which is the spiritual aspect of life, and also to go slowly. So when we talk about the transition points from season to season, we talk about slowing down whatever it is you're doing for a current season, and then slowly increasing the new requirements of the next season. And actually right now, the day we're recording this podcast together, we're in a seasonal transition from the summer season to the fall season. So it's that exact time where we should be ramping down now on the summer food requirements and starting to add more of the bitter, astringent, and sweet tastes to our diet if we live in the hemisphere where it is fall. Obviously, if you're in a different hemisphere where it's the opposite, then you have to follow the, the spring guidance as, as it would be over there. But where I am right now, it's it's transitioning into the fall. So um, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating how it all works together. And then we can also recommend yoga asanas or, or poses and breathing exercises and chanting mantras as a kind of therapy, looking at the stars, going for moon walks at night, because it's about living in harmony with nature. Ayurveda would say that nature is the highest healer. And the more we can get closer to nature, the more we can connect with nature, the healthier we're going to feel. So even... Our wake up and sleep times are really important for aligning us with circadian rhythms. And that's, again, another pretty general health prescription, if you can follow it. There are exceptions, like people who are very ill, people who are elderly, people who've just given birth, uh, babies, elderly people, little children. They may not be able to follow this guidance, but... In general, for relatively healthy people, it's very highly recommended to try to sleep by 10pm and to try to wake up by 6am so that you keep your body in that circadian rhythm. And when you see the transition of darkness to light, it has a deeply healing effect on your psyche in addition to helping promote easier elimination of bowels, and giving you a more positive outlook on life. So say if a person were coming due to anxiety or depression, then that would be as important as the food changes that would be required because it's said in the ancient Vedic texts that the period of the early dawn from about 4 a.m. to about 6 a.m. and a little after perhaps, 6 a.m is considered brahma murta in sanskrit which means the the time of easiest connection with brahman which is that supreme consciousness and that quality of sattva that we talked about that quality of purity clarity harmony peace it's naturally all over in the universe at that early time of the morning so when you wake up to catch it it's like you get this download of pure sattva into your whole being which is extremely therapeutic and gives a person a lot of upliftment and we also talk about even offering prayers of thanks to the sun for the gift of a new day because the sun represents the soul the sun represents health wealth knowledge courage power, creativity, and the idea that everything we're looking for ultimately lives within ourselves. We evoke the sun with different names. We have 12 different names for the sun, which are connected with different chakras within our being. And there's one uh, mantra in particular, the first of the 12 Surya Namaskar mantras, which traditionally go with the sun salutation series and it says om mitraya namaha meaning i say namaha or i say or give my prostrations to the sun as a friend mitra means friend as a friend of all and that sun that is a friend of all lives within my heart so say if a person is going through tremendous heartbreak or anxiety or ocd even then remembering that that sun that we see outside also lives in our own heart and chanting this mantra Om Mitraya quite a few times or even just a few times with a lot of intention while watching the sun and feeling your own heart is a therapeutic prescription in Ayurveda. So it really can be quite a lot of different things depending on the person and what their needs are and what they're, you know, most receptive to actually doing.
0: How do you, I think one of the interesting things is Obviously, all of these systems like Ayurveda or traditional Chinese medicine, they, they arose from a particular time and space. And, and so with Ayurveda, uh, potentially in this Indian subcontinent or even that idea of Veda, uh, they, they talk about like the, the Aryans. So, and there's different theories about where they came from, mm-hmm. um, but that's that Vedantic knowledge. But, but certainly it arose in a, in a particular time, a particular place, like, like anything in life. And one of the the things that I found interesting with Ayurveda, and and like any traditional system, is the knowledge is is obviously based around the culture, the surroundings, the the, the plants, the foods that one would have access to. Mm -hmm. But you also mentioned this really interesting idea, which uh, I think people are realizing is very important. And you mentioned it with this idea of food, of of like eating locally, eating seasonally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how do you find that balance of taking something that comes from a very particular part of the world, a, a time, a place, uh, obviously very familiar with the plants or the foods that are in that that environment, but then taking those principles and perhaps applying them to different parts of the world? Because, um, you know, for example, you know, I, I saw this with Chinese medicine a lot was mm-hmm. – <clears throat> a lot of the plant remedies would be like imported from china because i mean it makes sense like they're it's chinese medicine they're familiar with these medicines but it also seems maybe not congruent with that that idea of like eating locally eating seasonally because those medicines are from another part of the world which are conducive to a different environment so how Mm -hmm. do you find that idea of like taking the principles of ayurveda but also applying those in a more local level
1: That's exactly what we do, and that's exactly what we recommend. And that's exactly even what the texts have said, that desha, location, is actually an important consideration when looking at health. And it's where you're at at a certain moment in time, but also a person based on where in the world their ancestors come from could have certain Ability to be more accustomed to certain foods, too. So it's kind of a both and. It's, it's very interesting because, I mean, I must be an exception to this rule because supposedly people from India should have a higher tolerance for spicy foods than from people who are not from there, but I seem to not have developed that. So I don't know if it's very true for all people. I don't really tolerate spicy food very well, but a lot of Indians do tolerate it a lot more than people who are not Indian. I have noticed that. And so there can be a kind of idea of suitability, right? So if you research your ancestors, where did they come from? What did they eat? You may find that you are able to digest better what they were eating than maybe people who are not from that same part of the world that you're from. So there's this idea of suitability in Ayurveda. There's also this concept of local is best, you know, location, desha, because what we're offered locally is going to be what's actually helpful for us, right? So if you're in a place like a cold environment, for example, it may be that you end up eating a lot of like fish, right? Or, or meat because that's what's available, right? They may not be growing a lot of flora and fauna that you would get in a jungle or a tropical place just because the environment's not allowing for that. But according to Ayurveda, if you're in a really cold environment, you need heavier foods because your digestion actually is a lot stronger in such a place, and it will require something heavier for you to stay nourished and sustained. So it's a pretty good rule of thumb that we can trust in our environment to provide naturally what we need to survive in that environment. And then, of course, you can always get some cool spices, you know, if wherever you can find them. Like, for example, turmeric originally is from India, but now everyone's trying to get a patent on turmeric because it's just so helpful that now a lot of people are making it. Now it's kind of everywhere, right? Because it's it's a pretty universally beneficial spice. So even if you were to add it to non-Indian cuisines, it's going to help your body, right? To fight off microbes and, and all kinds of other infections and bacteria and things like that.
0: Do you think that's one of the benefits of, of Ayurveda? Is is really <clears throat> having and understanding these principles? Because yes, uh, <laughs> yeah, <I> because do. <laughs> even if about, like diet, for example, I, I think there's there's so much confusion around that. Um, you, things are promoted as 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 panaceas, panaceas like uh, raw food is the way to go, or, or carnivore is the way to go, or vegan is the way to go, or vegetarian is the way to go. But again, it's 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 looking at the world as if uh, it's not composed of separate parts, that there aren't individuals with different life histories, different life stories, different needs, different constitutions. And to not understand that, you're actually not understanding like the basic building blocks of what it means to be healthy, to be whole.
1: Totally. Yeah, exactly. There's so many considerations that we have to take into account. And that's why we do ask so many questions to really understand and get to know a person and what they're going to be best suited for based on where they're located, what they're going through, what their ancestors were doing, what kind of plants are naturally available to them, what's going to be freshest for them, right? Because even when foods are coming from far, far away, they go through a lot more manufacturing and processing than what you can grow locally. So anything you can grow yourself, you know, that itself will infuse a lot of love and relationship with the plant, which will make its therapeutic benefit even deeper for you because you would have gotten to know it and cared for it and cultivated it prior to consuming it, you know? So we have a deep respect for nature also as a part of the Ayurveda tradition, right? So we are recommended to even chant a mantra of appreciation to the plants before we take them, you know? So we we talk to them, we communicate with them. Not everyone teaches that, but that's how I've learned it. And that's what I feel about it, that plants are full of consciousness and they're very sacred and special uh, beings, you know? So that's even why we're careful on how many herbs we prescribe because a lot of the herbs are also endangered in different parts of the world so we want to try to do as much as we can on our own right and only take that support of herbal remedies when we've done everything we can we have our foundation of diet and lifestyle, but we still need something extra because of maybe a higher than normal level of stress or pressures or requirements on our physical body or our mind or, you know, something like that.
0: You mentioned for yourself some of the things you were were dealing with were like digestive issues, anxiety, maybe not the best sleep, low energy. Those seem to be really common Things that people are dealing with now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, do you think there's? I guess this is a two-part question. Do you think there's something going on in the world that's contributing to that? And and then the second part of that is uh, through that Ayurvedic lens. Maybe through your own experience or what worked for you, or or if someone came to you, for example, with those uh, conditions what is kind of like a I mean I know it's a there's a lot but more kind of on a basic level what what would be like prescriptions that you would give to someone who's who's going through those things
1: Things like digestive issues insomnia anxiety mm-hmm. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um well is there anything in the world contributing I mean our world is a crazy place right now there's constantly stress and changes all the time we're constantly having to adapt to situations right and the sages had recognized that we're all more vulnerable during times of great change so it makes sense that so many people would be feeling off in these times i have personally felt that through the past years of the pandemic i had to take up my practices to another level In order to really feel that same kind of balance, you know, and and resistance and immunity to getting sick, right? So it's like we have to work a little harder than ever to keep our balance, to keep our bodies in a state of health. And it's only natural that it would be a time when people would struggle with these things. Because even the changes in the world are so much to process and digest. In Ayurveda... Digestion is considered the key to overall health. And when we're talking about digestion, it's not just of your physical food in your stomach. It's also talking about digesting information, digesting emotions, digesting life experiences. And a lot of us have had really intense life experiences. I mean, we all just went through a global pandemic. That's a very intense experience to digest, right? The fact that so many people died, that we had to be isolated for such long periods of time. We were not able to continue our normal activities. It was a trauma. So even if we've never gone through any other kind of difficulty or trauma, we do have all this one. We all have this one on our record, right? And it's a big thing to process and digest. So in order to digest, we have to be able to develop a healthier relationship first with our food and really approach the act of eating as a sacred one with reverence. And really for me, what helped me the most was to transform my relationship with my own body first and to see my body as a divine vessel. And that's, The idea of my book, The Way of the Goddess, is starting to find that divinity within you. And goddess, because we all have that divine feminine within ourselves, which is the power we have to give birth to the best of ourselves, no matter what challenges we're going through outside. And so when I look at food, simple act of eating, now I see it in a whole new way. Whereas before it was just treating my body like a trash can and just, you know, popping in snacks around the corner in New York because they have different things available around different corners, walk and talk and eat and eat by the computer. And just, you know, I wasn't really present for the food when I would eat earlier on in life before I learned Ayurveda. Then it became about actually eating is an act of making an offering to my body as a sacred temple. That's a very significant shift, but it really helped to see it that way. And then to start to make each mealtime into a sacred occasion where I would, I still, and I always will first take a moment to just say thank you for this gift of food and nourishment. And in expressing that gratitude internally understanding that the food will better nourish me because I've taken that time to appreciate it and actually, you know, smell it, look at it, perhaps touch it, engage with it through different senses, develop a connection with it. And then it really helps to chew the food, not just to, you know, inhale the food. I used to do that. I see people doing that a lot. And it makes a huge difference to chew your food and really feel what is it like for my food to be tasted? what What is it like to experience each flavor and go slow with it as much as we can? I mean, I think just going slower in life solves a lot, really, because world, this world is moving so fast and we're so impatient and we want everything right now. And it gives us a lot of problems, right? Nature never rushes yet everything is always accomplished i believe lao Tzu has said that and it's such great wisdom that our bodies have the capacity to do everything but there's a time for everything and that's what ayurveda has to teach us and so when we take that time when we are conscious with our food when we are deliberate when we are slow with it and we really see it as a divine offering to our own higher self then It changes so much and it makes each meal into true nourishment. And after we finish it, then what we're recommended to do is sit in a yogic pose called Vajrasana, which is called Thunderbolt pose, where you basically sit on your heels and you close your eyes, even if you can't sit like that, but wherever you're sitting, you sit up a little straighter, you know, and then try to close your eyes and actually visualize The food you've eaten being digested and converting from raw food into immunity, into strength, into vitality for your whole being. And this asana of Vajrasana is said to connect the best of our physical manifestation with our higher consciousness because it is the only yogic posture that's recommended after you eat. And it specifically really connects all the chakras and it helps you to really feel your oneness with your own power of digestion at all different levels. And I think going slow also is what helps us digest, right? Information. When we slowly read something and take it in, right? When we slowly eat something and take it in and really process it, it helps a lot. Same thing with emotions, right? Instead of just quickly reacting based on what we feel and just saying what we feel right away when we just pause and go slow down with it and question it and look into it and go deeper with it then we're able to resolve it better for ourselves right and we're able to be able to see situations more clearly more objectively and that will help us to be able to digest those emotions and the same thing with life's experiences, you know? So I feel that a lot of times when people have physical issues, there can be deeper underlying issues and emotional issues that need to be addressed and seen in a different light, right? So if there's something in childhood, for example, that caused a lot of fear, and I had those kind of situations in my childhood, then I realized I needed to actually address those, and I needed to heal those in order to even digest my physical food, you know? So this idea that there's a goddess with lots of weapons and the element of fire living in my Manipura chakra, my stomach, where I digest everything, was really empowering for me to think that, okay, I need to reclaim my power in my life and stand up for myself in order to digest my food. You know, so it can be very surprising actually what you need to do to heal your digestion. It may not just be add turmeric to everything. Your digestion will be all better. Sometimes you got to really just dig deep into there and see what's causing the problem and then heal it at its root and really understand if there's something you're afraid of. And I was I had a lot of fear from my childhood because my Father growing up had a lot of rules, like a lot of dads do, you know, like do this, not don't do that. And a lot of discipline was instilled, which is a great thing. I'm really glad that I learned discipline and that I have discipline. It's a a good thing. But we have to be disciplined in the right way for the right things and not just going crazy over it and getting to be control freaks, right? So I was kind of a control freak within myself, perfectionistic and all of that. And I'm like, oh, this isn't helpful. You know, I need to be disciplined about eating my meals on time, but I don't need to be so disciplined about or or misinterpreting discipline as abusing my body, right? By not eating when I'm upset, but instead looking at what are these emotions rather than running away from them and then learning to eventually be able to voice them. So for me, it was only when I could really, you know, confront this, childhood issue of even being force-fed food, that I could really heal my relationship with food. And, you know, raising issues that are hard to raise, especially within our families, can be really, really therapeutic. And I give a lot of stories and examples of how I did that in my book, because that's what really brought the healing all together. Then only could I benefit from the herbs then only could the lifestyle really help me and bring about a true and lasting sustainable transformation in my life which is a process that's cyclical that's continuously evolving but it really meant looking that fear in the face right of getting punished for not eating foods that didn't agree with my body and I had to really look at that and I had to really go there and look that fear in the face and say, I see you and when it, whatever I can see can no longer have power over me, right? And then and then naming it and expressing it and I had a lot of healing actually with my dad And and then that healing gave me such profound relief that I could then have a healthier relationship with my food from then on. And I really believe it's only by doing all of that, that I could heal, right? Eating a different way, eating slower, being conscious with how I eat, but also healing those old memories of getting punished for not eating everything on my plate, right? Because a lot of times people will say there's children starving in other countries. And so we have to, we're forced to eat it. And it's not a healthy thing, you know? And there are certain foods that don't agree with certain bodies. And I didn't agree with eggplant. It really just didn't sit well with me. And so I would get scared every time. Oh, no, eggplants on the menu for dinner, like got to run and hide. And it was so hard. Like I would take little bits of it, put it in a napkin, go flush it down the toilet, throw it in the wastebasket just because I could not eat it. And then to to be force fed it was just like torture, you know, And, and get punished if I didn't. Right. So it's like there's no winning in that. There's no uh, kind of no way out, right? Except to try to go to the bathroom and throw away as much of the food as I possibly can. But that was what I was confronting whenever I was eating, you know, and that's part of why I wasn't sleeping. That's part of... Uh, the root cause of all the health issues, I think that I had one of them, but then there's many other things that I had to confront within myself. But I really believe that when we go deep like that into our emotions and into conquering these inner demons, right, of our fear, our angers, our insecurities, and owning them, taking responsibility for them, just because something happened that someone else did, right, doesn't mean that they're responsible for how we feel forever how we feel is our responsibility we have to take ownership for our reality right and do whatever we can to change that and Mm -hmm. in ayurveda there is a huge understanding of the law of karma as being really important to our physical health because how we are feeling physically is also the result of all of the actions we've taken up to this point. And so if a person's trying to reverse a chronic issue, then we have to understand that patience will be required. Persistence will be required because it took a lot to get this into a state of imbalance. And so it's going to take all that effort and more to move something into a different direction, right? So just having that understanding and willingness to be patient and go slow and not give up, right? And keep going through and following through with the process that that's what's going to bring us healing and not being obsessed with the outcome, right? So the spirituality is very, very important also in physical healing, because when we're like, I just want to be able to sleep, I just want to be able to sleep. It's that wanting to be able to sleep that's keeping us up at night. As soon as we stop wanting it, it can actually happen, right? So even letting go of our desires at times is a health prescription. So it can be quite deep. And that's why this book is actually very deep because the pandemic gave that time and space to go really deep And I felt like this is what I need to do for me, you know, and writing the book was first and foremost, my personal transformation project to actually put into writing what has already happened to strengthen it for myself, to make my own self realize all the transformations that have already occurred so that I continue to evolve with it and to keep growing with it, to keep on my path, you know, with this knowledge and with applying it and with using it to question everything about myself and really you know go deep that way. I don't know if that's where you expected this answer yep. to go but that's where I feel the healing has happened for me.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you. One of the the areas that you mentioned with ayurveda in this this holistic system is this idea of mind and i think it's something we we overlook a lot and when you said that i I was reminded of this quote by ramana maharshi or Mm -hmm. Sri ramana maharshi and and it's this idea that the mind isn't separate from herself i I think he says it really beautifully he says that when the mind is turned inwards it reveals the self and when the mind is turned outwards it's it's revealed as the ego and the world made manifest Mm -hmm. And it it kind of, it also reminds me of this idea, which seems like a a fundamental principle in Ayurveda, which is this idea that it's also a very ancient alchemical idea, which is this idea of as above, so below, or as within, so without,
1: this idea that
0: we are a microcosm for the macrocosm, and that part of that is that balance, and that when we are also in in a way of what you were saying about the pandemic in a way too, like if the world is seemingly out of balance, then that's also very conducive to creating an inner imbalance. Um, I don't know if there's a really a question there, but but maybe speaking about that idea of like, uh, of like, as without, so within, because that, that seems to be a really fundamental principle in Ayurveda. And I think something that, that we often overlook. I think there's often this, maybe from like an economic principle, uh, this idea of like life is a zero-sum game. And that by taking something, I'm taking something from someone else and it's disadvantaging Mm -hmm. someone else rather than also you mentioned Lao Tzu from this more like Taoist principle, which is this idea that that like life or energy i think he says it very beautifully like it's a well and the more you use it the more it gives
1: yeah which is which is
0: a radical shifting and thinking that that this idea that that both the external harmony and the internal harmony are actually the same and that if things in our outer life, our outer life is out of balance, then of course there's going to be an inner imbalance and Mm -hmm. that there's this symbiotic relationship of the two, um, and and also, I guess this idea of the mind about the mind in Ayurveda, because I think it's something that's that's so overlooked because we tend to focus more on the physical, like the the the, the base layer, because it's so obvious. It's mm-hmm. you know, if you have a digestive issue, like it's 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 right there. If you can't sleep, as you said, like it's yeah. it's right there. It's, it's in your face. It's like it's all you can think about. But that the, there are these more subtle layers as well.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely, and yes, that is exactly. What you said, as above, so below, the interconnection between the macrocosm and the microcosm is a huge principle of Ayurveda. It's uh, the connection of Pinda and Brahmanda in the spiritual philosophy that we are a part of that whole and we are interconnected at a deep level with that whole so that's why Ayurveda is all about nature and understanding nature living in harmony with nature so that our inner nature comes into a state of balance and harmony as well and when we are looking at this connection between our inner world and the outer world it's through the presence of these five great elements So it's through that law of the connection of the microcosm of our own body and mind with the macrocosm, the world body and mind or the outer body and mind uh, that we find a state of balance through the presence of these five great elements. That's kind of the substratum or the underlying uh, building blocks of both internal and external worlds. And so we have to you know, take that into consideration too. Like, what's the climate where you live? Is that helpful for your constitution, right? So if you are a person who has a lot of dry skin, for example, then living in a desert environment <laughs> is probably not gonna be that helpful for you. It's gonna increase that dry quality within you. And the, the idea of the like increases like is also very big in Ayurveda, it's connected with this. So whenever you have more of the same quality, then it will increase itself, right? And it will cause imbalance potentially, and dislikes will decrease or balance out your system. So if you had dry skin, for example, then oil is very helpful because it has the opposite qualities of unctuousness and and all of that, which will balance the dryness so if you're in a dry environment then you have to make sure to do things like oiling and also internally consuming enough oil in your food in order to stay in balance so that's really really important the mind and the role of the mind in healing and in irv that really cannot be i think uh, overestimated or over emphasized because it is so key that all of the Ayurvedic texts list the mind and emotions as a huge causative factor for all physical health issues. So anytime we have too much of any emotion in the mind because the mind controls our emotions, whereas the intellect is more responsible for our thoughts and for our ability to plan and to decide and to actually exercise the thinking process of the higher mind, right? But the mind itself is more of the emotional, reactive nature that we have. And it is definitely more subtle. But what we understand in the Vedanta spirituality, which is the underlying principles also of Ayurveda, is that the subtle controls the gross, So the subtle aspect of the mind is actually responsible for the gross body. And if you want to go even deeper than the subtle aspect, which is the mind and emotions, then you have to go into the intellect, the ability to think, to reason, to analyze, to judge, to decide, to reign in the mind, to control the mind, to direct the mind, in the way that you would like it to go to then you know have the mind also regulate the body in a healthy way so the role of the intellect is actually even more important than the mind itself because it's the intellect that reigns in the mind and it's the intellect that is ultimately driving the show and it's the intellect that exercises discernment discernment is a huge thing in Ayurveda because we're always having choices. And when we exercise our discernment with our intellect, then only are we going to choose that which is going to be truly beneficial to us and which is going to bring us joy and then joy to others as a result as well. So a lot of times we don't even think, we just go based on our emotional reactions, which is operating at a mind level. But what we really want to do in Ayurveda for the deepest healing is to also start exercising our thinking faculty of the intellect. And I am very fortunate that I've taken a three-year program through the Vedanta World Organization with a 95-year-old Swami called Swami Parthasarthi who lives in India. And he's created the only institution in the world where you actually get to learn how to develop your intellect as a kind of muscle. And what he teaches about it is that there are two main ways to develop your intellect and develop that muscle of discernment and decision making, which is going to lead you to making better choices consistently in your life. And that is one, to not take anything for granted, and two, to question everything. So if we're having problems, we have to really question why. And go deep into that self-inquiry to really get to the root of what is causing the issue. And again in Vedanta, it's desires that cause a lot of distress and disturbances in life. Usually if we're not able to sleep at night, it's because we want something. And we believe there's something outside us that will make us feel complete, that will make us feel fulfilled. And that's the basic ignorance that we have as human beings, which we are on a healing path looking to address, right? That we're connecting on a healing path with the joy within, with the feeling of completion and fulfillment, regardless of what comes and goes in our life. Because when we develop that deep spiritual connection, with our source, with all of existence, right? Because the soul in me is the same as the soul in you. It's the same as the soul in the trees, in the animals, in the plants, right? And that's why plants are so sacred because they have souls, right? And they can't communicate. Even animals can communicate more than they can, but they are still spiritual beings with the soul. And we are also spiritual beings with the soul. And when we can connect with that eternal aspect of ourselves, then we get the deepest level of stability and security and refuge to be able to weather the storms, even of the things that come and go from our physical body, right? That if we have some disease or just harmony in our body, then just having a desire for it to go away is actually worsening the situation, right? So what we're taught to do is to actually anchor our mind and through the intellect, anchor this desire into something higher, into a higher ideal. So also written in the Ayurvedic texts is taking up a path of selfless service somehow. There's a... It's a written prescription in the Ayurvedic texts where the mind is involved, especially it's really important to do what are called Nishkarma karma, which means actions with our, which are without desire, which are not motivated by desire. And in the Vedanta philosophy, we have three different kinds of actions we can take in life. One are selfish actions, which just seek our own personal benefit. The second are unselfish actions, which seek the benefit of other people or other beings. Then we have what are called selfless actions. And these are actions that not only free us from the bondage of karma, but they are without any kind of desire underlying. So these are actions which are gonna make us automatically live in greater harmony with nature. This is where we ask ourselves through that questioning process and that self-inquiry process, what are my natural gifts? What am I naturally you know, able to do? And how can I offer them purely in service of all without any personal motive or agenda behind it? Just like a rose is giving its fragrance because that's the nature of the rose. What is it that I can do? Because it's in my nature, in my propensity to do it. And if I just do it because that's what I ought to do, then I'm not in the bondage of what happens as a result or what doesn't happen as a result of that. And then I am embodying the great teachings of Mother Nature, which are to be you know, one with the sun that we see outside, to be one with the stability of the tree, to be one with that beautiful fragrance of the rose, and anything we see outside, remembering that that lives within us too, and doing what we can to return back to that spiritual essence. Because spirituality, spiritual knowledge, dispelling this ignorance of who we are as the limited body and the the decaying you know, body and the mind that's constantly changing and even the thoughts that we have and the ability to think and shifting that identification from these changing equipments to our eternal self itself will bring us onto a path that will bring us great peace in our minds. And when our minds are at peace, our body will follow suit because the gross always follows the subtle. It's not the other way around
0: yeah there's something you touched on in a few different ways that i find a a lot of people and you use this word discernment and and i find Mm -hmm. a lot of people actually um, struggle with finding that discernment and
1: yeah
0: it's with this idea for example like you use this example of of these certain things that happened in your childhood with your father and actually mm-hmm. beginning to, to see those to recognize that through a process of self-inquiry or going inward and that a big part of your healing was also like finding this personal power finding the voice bringing resolution to it addressing it mm-hmm. uh, um naming it uh, possibly forgiving it and also yeah, you mentioned right? yeah and, and also this idea of karma, which <clears throat> this idea that, that I think, as you said, very beautifully, like that, that where we're at is inevitably a, a result of past actions that we've taken or thoughts or beliefs. And it, I think a lot of people struggle with that balance because on the one hand, like from the example you were saying, it's really important to recognize that trauma or that, that that thing that happened. But also as you were saying, if we focus on that too much, it actually feeds it. It gives it fire. It gives it power. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. one of the antidotes to that is also like this idea, I think you called it Nish Karma, this idea of of service. Because when when we step out of that, then there literally is no trauma because there is no even mem we're not we're not feeding that we've we've Mm -hmm. stepped out of that and so that heaviness is almost in a way like magically lightened because it's not so much about us anymore there's Mm -hmm. there's a levity to it through an act of service or through an act of transforming it of transmuting it and so maybe this kind of a a long question but but what do you think is that balance of like recognizing that we had bad things happen to us potentially in our life that Mm -hmm. Who we are is a result of that, needing to come to terms with that, needing to deal with that, but at the same time, not feeding it, not giving it more power than it needs, because then, uh, in a way, we become that. Uh, it, it was really interesting. I, I worked with someone recently, and I mean, without going into too much detail, but, but she was saying she had become her trauma. That it was so it was so prevalent that there there wasn't even space anymore between it because it was so it had been fed so much that it was now a reality, and so mm-hmm. I think a lot of people they have problems discerning that that balance. Um, you know, on the one hand, it, it, it's like in English we have this 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 expression like pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You know, like take make discernment, take control over your life and there's a real validity to that. And then mm-hmm. on the other hand, there's a validity to, as you were saying, like going into the past, going into the trauma, bringing resolution to that. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of times people feel that those, those two things are at odds. It's like your life mm-hmm. has to be about trauma work or on the other end, your life has to be about pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, taking <laughs> avoiding your, it, you know, recognizing anything, not going into anything. And I think a lot of people have, have a problem discerning like where is that balance where is that harmony where's that place of ease
1: yeah no that's that's really a good point because it can be very tempting to get sucked into a rabbit hole with the trauma work where it's endless and anything can be a trigger, right? And anything can set us off. And, oh man, it just feels like, are we ever going to get better? You know, like if we just stay in that kind of realm. And at the same time, we have to have patience, right? Because it does take the time it takes to dig in and do the work. But honestly, that's where I believe the spiritual knowledge of who we really are is what needs to be strengthened because all of this is karma, right? This is what happened to us, not of our own choice, right? It's just a result uh, or an effect of many past decisions, probably not even in this life necessarily, that are accumulating and coming to fruition in this life, but our power to create new karma, right, to, to control in a sense what comes in the future is always in our own hands. And so if we have that knowledge that everything is due to karma and we're creating our karma right now, it really helps to with discernment that how am I going to go into this? Am I going to just go into it as a victim or can I go into the trauma fearlessly as a divine being, right? And that's where the healing happened for me that, okay, I've been running from this. I've been pulling myself up by my bootstraps for a long time. It wasn't really that long. I was actually quite young when I did it, but it felt like a long time because it was all my life before that. And I'm like, oh, but now I have this new information. I have this new knowledge that actually there is a powerful goddess lives in my third chakra and when I remember that that divinity lives within me as me then I am going to be connecting with that to look at the darkness right so we have to do kind of integration of the highest wisdom the highest light of knowledge of who we really are as an eternal being and bring that into these dark scary places Because if we don't, it's like operating out of a split. Sometimes people go from one end to the other themselves, where they'll be either fully identified as a victim of a past situation, or they will be so detached from it and even be able to talk about high philosophies and spiritual things, which can sound great to other people, but they're not helping them, right? So it's like we have to bring that spiritual knowledge to these Places of trauma, understand them in a different lens with a different perspective, and then be able to start to resolve them because we know through the knowledge that we have the power to address it and have that intention to revisit only to be able to remember what it is we needed to know from that experience, which is never to do it again, right? Which is never to pass it along to someone else. That's the main thing to learn from trauma. Is there something that you've experienced in your life that you are now doing to another person in some way? That's the question we should spend a lot of time on. And that is the question that will help pull us out of the whole cycle, right? Because what we're doing now is going to impact what we experience in the future. So when we have that knowledge, then we can see it in the right way. We can put it in the right perspective. And anytime our mind goes there, we can say, oh, that was some past karma that I had to experience and that taught me to be a more compassionate, forgiving and stronger person. And so therefore, we then know that we've really processed and healed from it when we start to even appreciate that it happened, that we feel grateful that it happened because it taught us such a valuable lesson. And if we have some idea of this is how we need to approach it and this is where we need to go with it, then it will be very helpful to navigate through that dark situation in a healthier way. So that's what I've tried to provide in my book throughout our steps and guidance and questions you can ask yourself and ways to know if you're progressing, right? And how to really uh, try to approach trauma and try to approach these internal processes of healing in your life, because it is important to have knowledge and guidance. And I feel personally so grateful for it. And it's really just through that gratitude that I felt called to write this book as a kind of niche karma karma right of just this is what i experienced this is what i'm called to do as a healer right is to heal myself and then to just share this is my experience you know and uh this is how i was able to bring the spirituality to the darkness but knowledge yeah. is power
0: mm-hmm you you mentioned something that I found fascinating. Um, I, I'm really interested in in ancient cultures and, and mm-hmm. these traditions and and actually the universality between them, um, which I think is something that's really been lost and and I think probably in a large part for good reason because that's one of the things the mind does is it likes to to separate and split and reduce and, and label. Mm-hmm. Uh, But it was really interesting. It wasn't something I had thought about, but you were mentioning the Surya Namaskara, the the sun salutation and this idea of of giving thanks to Mitra. And it's really fascinating because Mitra was a very old, uh, people consider it a religion that it even predates like Zoroastrianism, but it was in that part of the world of, of India and Persia. And Mitra was actually the name of uh, of God, and it, it also related to the sun. and And there's a whole religion around that, so that's that's really fascinating. And and I would imagine there's there's a connection there. Um. With with that idea, because that that in a sense is a type of prayer. And you mentioned this idea of how mm-hmm. prayer is so important, and mm-hmm. and and also this idea of, of of nature that nature is the highest healer and. In a lot of cultures, I think, uh, especially probably cultures where where people are listening to this, that seems like two things that that very much we've become removed from. Like the idea yeah. of prayer, many people seems very silly. It seems very antiquated. It, it seems like non scientific. That that it's kind of for uneducated people, and that there's no right. benefit. <laughs> And, that, and, and, and it seems like, similarly, that idea of nature has become that way, too, kind of in, in humanities, maybe, uh, kind of this idea of, of what Ramana Maharshi was saying, like, when the mind is turned outward, it, it's the ego. And, and through mm-hmm. that egoic state, thinking that we are somehow separate from nature, going back to that, like, Ayurvedic principle of so without, so within... Mm -hmm. that we're not and if we get too far removed from nature and nature's principles then disease is the natural uh, result of that it's it's just kind of definitionally very very simple so are there things that that you find um maybe practices or or ways that, that people who are maybe feeling it that either one they've become disconnected from nature or two Maybe someone realizes that there's something in them that realizes that 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 resonates with that idea of prayer, but it's just such a foreign concept that they don't even know where to begin. Um, <laughs> is there anything you found that's that's useful with with those two?
1: Yeah, like where to begin as far as that making that connection with prayer and nature goes and how to kind of ease your way into it if you feel a little unsure about the whole thing because we're not really taught to do that Uh, yeah you know honestly there's a quote by someone who i cannot remember the name of who said if the only prayer you ever said in your life was thank you that would be enough so what can you start appreciating what can you be grateful for and that itself is a kind of affirmation and prayer of something positive, which is actual, which is existing, right? So that would be a great place to start because in the what Swami Parthasarathy always says about education is that it's really important to go from what's known, known factors, to what's unknown. So you got to start with what you know in order to make that bridge to faith or spirituality or God, Right. So I feel gratitude is a wonderful place to start because you're shifting your focus to something that's positive that you know. And then as far as nature goes, you know, I actually stayed in New York City during the pandemic. And the way I connected my to nature, <laughs> oh my gosh, for two and a half years. And I wrote this book while in that little, like, hardly saw the sun. I saw hardly saw the sun as an Ayurveda practitioner, which is all about the sun, right? The Ayurveda system is all about the sun. I didn't even see it for a long time, like two years. But I found that I was still really happy because of the rituals themselves and the practices themselves that... I could connect with the sun within myself after many years of practice and discipline where I had the light of the sun every day, I actually lived in the golden sunshine state of California, which was just as beautiful as what you're you know, sitting by in Peru. And it was an amazing way to be in an environment that was conducive to Ayurveda practices and to learning Ayurveda. But after that experience in the opposite in New York City, I found also that food and cooking was an excellent way to feel connected to nature because the vegetables are grown in Mother Earth. And when you touch them, when you chop them, and then when you taste them, it's such a five-sensory experience to bring you into connection with nature as well as the present moment. So I just found incredible joy in creating all kinds of new recipes using all the Ayurvedic ingredients. And I happen to live by a great grocery store. So that helped a lot, too. (laughs) Excuse me.
0: (laughs) And when we started, you mentioned this this really interesting idea that uh, Ayurveda is part of uh, of a system which also incorporates yoga and Vedanta. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, could you talk a little bit more about that? Because I, I think, again, for a lot of people, they when they think of yoga, they don't think of Ayurveda. Or if they think of Ayurveda, they're not thinking about yoga. It's like two completely separate things. So maybe speaking about yoga and then also Vedanta, because uh, uh, probably some people have heard that. But But I think it's something that's, that one, a lot of people haven't heard of, and and two, the power behind that. Because there's, I don't know, for for me, some of those texts are are some of the most powerful and beautiful in the world. And and I think Mm -hmm. if if someone just had that, almost like that idea of if, if the only, you had was, was a thank you or gratitude, that would be enough. And, and I almost feel that way with like Vedanta, if all you had was a, a few of those Vedic texts, that would be enough. Like there's all the information in the universe contained in, in some of these, you know, most sublime of, of words.
1: Oh, absolutely. I completely agree with you. I was really fortunate to learn Ayurveda in a lineage tradition, which integrated Ayurveda with yoga, with Vedanta. So that's just how I learned it. You know, like the festival of Navratri, which is the nine-night goddess festival, which is traditionally an Ayurvedic festival of ritualistically transitioning from one season's food and lifestyle requirements to that of another, is a Vedantic festival, actually. It's bringing the supreme consciousness of Brahman into the form of a mother, a warrior mother goddess, because we've all had a mother to be able to be alive. Even if we don't know our biological mother, we all had one. And often, you know, we feel most connected to our mother because she's the one who has given us life. And if we don't have that connection it's one, often we might yearn for deep within because it's that first relationship also that we have in our lives. And so, by personifying something that goes beyond perception, that goes beyond qualities, that goes beyond name, form, or gender into a very familiar looking name and form of a mother, but also a warrior. We have this incredible way to bring everything together, I feel, and it just is a totally integrated system where to connect with the powers of the nine chakras within us where each uh, form of this warrior mother goddess are said to live, you know, theoretically or, or symbolically rather. It's really a great way to bring that unknowable infinite consciousness into a knowable Reality that's also practical, right? So when I have talked about, for example, eating my food now as an offering to the goddess within my third chakra, that is an Ayurvedic practice. It's also a yogic ritual to sit in that Vajrasana after completing the food and do the visualization on the food digesting into vitality and immunity and radiance and strength and all of that. But then it's also exercising the intellect to make a choice that's going to be conducive to my being able to experientially connect to that bliss of the self, which is the subject of Vedanta, right? So I just feel it's all so deeply interconnected. And this festival especially really highlights all those interconnections in such a natural and organic way where one is naturally feeding the other and complementing the other and their principles are all underlying the same Because we need a healthy body and a healthy mind to be able to understand the spirituality of Vedanta. It's not really accessible to a mind that is feeling a lot of inertia and dullness and, you know, darkness, right? If we're in the midst of our traumas, it's hard to remember or even understand this idea that bliss lives within you, right? You, You need your mind and body to be in a certain level of stability in order to be able to progress higher and higher on the spiritual path. So what Ayurveda and yoga are really doing are helping our gross body to give us the best kind of environment at our physical and mental and emotional and psychological level to then clear away any obstructions we may face to realizing our true self, which is the sole purpose of the Vedanta philosophy. So I can't even imagine them without each other. But <laughs> now you don't have to. You can just read the book, and you'll get it how I get it.
0: <laughs> you use this word "goddess" a few times, and, and it's uh, it's it's one of the words of the the name of your book. Mm-hmm. From from your understanding of Ayurveda, is, is there is there something that's like architect? typally captured in that idea of the goddess, that's different from the god archetype. Are they, are they symbiotic or or complementary forces, or what's what is the kind of the power, the significance of, of goddess versus god? Because it's it's something you you've used uh, many times, so it, it's something that that obviously resonates uh, with you.
1: Yeah, yeah. So in the Sankhya philosophy, which is the kind of core philosophical teachings of yoga, actually, which maybe a lot of people don't know about. We have these two kind of concepts of traditional divine masculine and divine feminine. And the divine masculine is known as purusha, which is universal consciousness, which is still, which is not moving, which is just, you know, that deep state of meditation. And then we have Prakriti, which is also known as Mother Nature, which is also known as Shakti. And Shakti is the power of creation, the power of transformation and the ability to move the inert aspect of Shiva or that Purusha consciousness into action and into life. And so Shiva and Shakti are the universal kind of principles that constantly are complementing and going together. And what we have in Shakti is something really active. And we have something that is really engaged in the world, right? And engaged in uh, the goings-on of the universe. Whereas the Shiva, the godhood, is kind of more inert. It's more... um, still, right? It's more detached. It's more kind of removed from the world, which will go there. You know, that that's the purpose of the spiritual journey is to get there. But it may not be where we start, right? So we need to start with what's a little more familiar, which is, I think, the Shakti, right? And we need that Shakti. We need that divine power in the face of worldly challenges to be able to go deep into the traumas and to be able to win the battle within in order to even make changes at a physical level, to be able to make changes at an emotional level, to be able to see things in a different way. We need that inner power and that kind of active principle of Shakti and creation to be able to make those changes. And that's why I always say that, you know, it may be goddess, but it's everyone has this principle within them. And it's really empowering, I think, if you don't even have a quote unquote female body to understand that that actually does live within you. And even for me, I find that the masculine, what's known as like divine masculine, is also a way that I connect with that Shakti myself because Shakti and Shiva are both inherently balanced. So you'll often see even images in the Indian mythology of them both being two sides of the same body, right? So one half is Shiva, one half is Shakti, and basically all these deities are already balanced between their masculine and feminine attributes, and then they work together. So in all the mythological stories of the goddess, there is a understanding of Shiva and of this kind of universal consciousness, which is connected to this power of creativity and transformation but i just think whenever we need to make change it's like as intense as giving birth in a way right because it's hard it requires effort it is connected to the world usually and so we we need something to start with that's going to be right in that world with us and giving us guidance and role models. You know, Ultimately, the idea of the goddess and the god and all, all deities and mythological stories are to give us role models for how to go through life. So that's really what it's about. You don't have to believe in any religion to benefit from it. It's just giving ideas on how to go through life's challenges, like a divine, authentic, empowered, highest version of one's own self which lives within us all
0: I, I saw a funny meme the other day and it said something like by by switching from coffee to green tea uh you lose 70 uh, percent of the little joy you still have left in life <laughs> <laughs> and yeah uh, it, it made me think because you were you were talking about this idea of like in one of these transitory periods that that there was this like community festival and this dance to really celebrate this change and and um, and that that seems I think like something that's really important that that's often lost in maybe a lot of these medicinal systems is something we forget about is this idea of joy of celebration of uh, much as you said, this idea of gratitude, of, of celebrating a life, whether it's through a ritual, through <clears throat> a dance, through community, through, uh, you know, ritual celebrations, through coming together. Um, there's often this very serious quality of of healing and, and health. Yeah. Uh, kind of like you mentioned this idea of like, um, was it uh, brahmacharya, the, the idea of restriction? Yeah. Yeah.
1: That
0: uh, it, it, you know, the only way forward is to somehow regress rather than actually more of this tantric idea of, of like really celebrating life, like celebrating all of the things that 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 can bring us joy. Um, and and that seems to be something that's that's really beautifully taken into account in Ayurveda is this idea that, that that joy is important because it's it's part of that holistic view of what it means to be healthy and happy. like. You know, I think we often forget. Like, part of being healthy is being happy, and and so to, to cultivate that joy is is vital.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Life should be celebrated. Healing should be celebrated. The fact that you even go on to a healing journey is a cause for joy and a cause for celebration. And in Ayurveda, it's believed that health and happiness are one right and so if we cultivate a sense of joy and happiness and actually celebrate the changes that we're making and the transitions that we're going through it's again activating that subtle part of us the mind and the subtle controls the gross so even feeling a sense of joy and happiness and celebrating something that you're doing that may be hard it tells the mind to relax And by relaxing, it allows that true self to be revealed. So actually in the heart chakra, the goddess Durga is present in the form of goddess Kushmanda, who is the goddess who created the world through heartfelt laughter. And she is supposed to be smiling in our heart. And When we're smiling and laughing and playing, that's when we are the most creative. And incidentally, the heart chakra is the place where a lot of the healing happens, right? Because their emotions are here in the heart. And when we are feeling really full and joyful and, you know, emanating with that joy, then that joy itself is going to be a healing medicine for our physical body. And our body will catch up. It may be slower. But if our if we do things that make us happy and that feel like joy and that feel like a celebration and that feel like fun, you know, then we'll be inspired to continue with it. It shouldn't be that Health is like a drudgery, right? I mean, we do have to do some hard things here. We do have to make some pretty big shifts and and make some bold changes, right? So that's why the book's journey is that of a hero's journey, because it is a heroic feat. Healing is hard. It's the hardest thing we'll probably ever do, right? So that's why we don't look at the darkness, because... We, we are afraid of how hard it's going to be. And that's why some people can't get out of it because it's hard, right? So if you go into it, you just feel like, oh, my God, is this ever going to end? But that's why we have a celebration. And that's why when we take that spirit of joyfulness and celebration, and also feel that we're on our own hero's journey and approaching it like that, it gives us a lot more motivation and inspiration to stay the course and endure all the difficulties because we are excited about it, right? We're, we're in an enthusiastic space with it that's going to give us that kind of joy of, or fire to burn through the resistances and really, uh do what's needed in the long term for that kind of feeling of of health to really be there. But yeah, health and happiness are one, according to the Ayurvedic tradition and system. So that's why sometimes, you know, we're even recommending what are called herdaya foods to certain people who are disinterested in eating or have just, you know, don't have any more taste left or appetite left. We say, okay. You know, instead of giving you detox foods when you're already miserable, why don't we give you what are called radeya <laughs> foods, which are heart healing foods. There are certain foods that are like really healing to the physical heart and the emotional heart. And when you also even eat what you love, right, what, what makes your heart happy, it itself can be a very helpful way to get you onto the path of healing. I mean, you don't want to endlessly indulge in what's not going to help you with your health. Hopefully you can find what's both enjoyable to you and helpful for your health if that's the ideal case. But in any case, we can definitely um, understand that choosing what brings us happiness, that's also of a pure quality, right? that's not agitating to the mind, that's not dulling to the mind or suppressing anything, but that's just like giving us pure joy and pure happiness, that that itself is a health prescription. So some of the practices I even share in this book are about allowing yourself to have fun and approaching situations like traffic with a sense of play and being like a child, you know, because that's one of the signs of spiritual evolution is that, you start feeling more and more like a child and more innocent and more full of wonder. And when you're full of wonder, it's easy to feel grateful, right? And that gratefulness is considered the parent of all other virtues. Because from gratefulness, we give back, right? And we are reciprocal in our relationships and we receive much from nature, but when we're grateful, we give back to nature too. And that's very healthy. For us as human beings to do.
0: Beautiful. So you you recently wrote a book. Um, can you talk about that? It's uh, it's called The Way of the Goddess, and um, you, you mentioned a little that you were inspired during the pandemic to write it. But mm-hmm. um, what, what would you say about the book? Uh, who, who is it for, and and what was the what was the idea behind writing it?
1: The book is for a lot of different people. (laughs) I have made a website page, which kind of listed it all out, that this book is for you if you wish to overcome any trauma in your life, if you want to evolve spiritually, step by step, if you are looking for new tools to support you in living your best life and helping other people, if you're looking for ways to develop more self-control and mastery over your mind and emotions, this is a really helpful resource. It's really great for... Uh, empaths, especially. I think that was my target audience: people who feel the emotions of others really easily, and maybe have trouble taking care of their own self. It's really great for anyone who's looking to really learn to love and accept them, their own self, and to be true to yourself in all situations of life, and to feel more confident and comfortable in your own skin. So it's it's a book for a lot of different kinds of people who are interested in an adventure, right? Who are interested in going on a journey to discover your own inner hero and your own inner warrior. And I say warrior and it's called uh, The Way of the Goddess with a subtitle, Daily Rituals to Awaken Your Inner Warrior and Discover Your True Self. Because we have a war to fight within ourselves. We have to battle with our emotions right we have to fight with our own anger our own fear our own hatred our own greed our own jealousies our own insecurities and we need to accept everything fully don't suppress anything acknowledge it all but then we need to channel it and move it in an upward direction in a a direction that's going to support us in becoming our best version of ourselves and so it requires a certain amount of effort, you know, to do that. And bravery, it takes courage to even embark on such a path. And I felt that, how do you, you know, really help people develop that courage and feel that more is possible for them than what they may currently feel is possible for them? And I just felt that it goes back to what the Bhagavad Gita says, that the only way to lead is by example. So I felt that I needed to also write my own personal healing and transformation stories in terms of how understanding the mythological stories and practicing the practices that the book offers for each of the nine chakras has really helped me on my own journey to be able to conquer these inner demons and to keep on fighting the battles to be true to myself in all situations of life. And I've just honestly benefited so much from approaching healing in this celebrating kind of way of celebrating every day the presence of one version or form of the warrior goddess durga within myself it's it's made the spiritual wellness journey into a really fun adventure full of synchronicity and surprises and unexpected blessings i always found that every year In the fall when we celebrate the Navratri Festival, which is like the big Navratri Festival, I always had breakthroughs. And I'm like, then why do I just want to celebrate it once a year? I should celebrate this every day so that I keep going on my way to, you know, continue to evolve, right? And to go beyond any comfort zone that I have in order to simply do what I ought to do. So I felt that writing the book, having healed and and feeling grateful for whatever has healed in my life was my way of just making an offering to back to nature, back to humanity, back to my own higher self and to the goddess, you know, idea. And to the ancient wisdom traditions that have gifted us this incredible knowledge. So it really became like a spiritual practice to write it for me and now to be able to share about it. it keeps pushing me out of my own comfort zone to go into a new realm, right, of what's possible. And I wanted to show people through my own journey what's possible for them too. And to give some step-by-step guidance so that it's not feeling like navigating in the dark so much, you know? And and so that was really the motivation to do it. And uh, it's kind of surreal that my personal transformation project is now a book. <laughs> and people can read about this, right? It's just become such a part of me that I'm like, wow, this is really interesting to see that. It's, it's a tangible, physical book now, but... Um, yeah, it's, it's been very healing for me to write it and to keep on living it and to keep going even deeper and deeper with whatever I have shared in the book. So it's definitely a process that keeps on transforming me as I keep on sharing it. So it's, it's keeping me on my path.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think those are really important points. I, I mean, uh, I think a huge part of the work... <clears throat> that I do here is, is very much taking people on, on that hero's journey. And it's, I think it's something that's not only vital, it's essential. I mean, it's in a a more mythical or spiritual point of view. It's why we're here on the earth is, is to Mm -hmm. actually walk that journey. And to not do that is going to bring suffering. It's going to bring uh, disease and, uh, you know also all of the all of the really good plant doctors that i know they almost always would describe themselves as warriors mm. and, and i think it's <clears throat> it's very foreign because I, I think a lot of people when they think about <clears throat> healing they think about rainbows and unicorns and <laughs> nice and yeah but it really is It's a, it's a it's a it's a journey into the night into the darkness so so that mm-hmm. we can find that light and um and also very much as you said i I think that's the strongest medicine is really leading by example and uh and when people when people have done that work themselves then the the natural byproduct of that is to share because if not then it's not in a way honoring that alchemical as within so without Uh, you know any any gifts that we found if they just stay in ourselves then then they're not shared. And, and it's why the healer or the curandero actually doesn't live isolated in a cave somewhere <laughs> and silently <laughs> meditating because then they're actually not helping and, and helping yeah. is being of the world, being part of the world. So that's really beautiful. And, and I really, I found it fascinating. I think it's the last chapter of your book is called Celebrating the Victory of Light Over Darkness.
1: Yes. It's important yeah. to do that after an every day every whew, after every nine day cycle of remembering a different avatar of Goddess Durga. On the tenth day, I always make it a celebration of that eternal victory of the light over darkness, and I take it as a day of Sabbath and a day of integration. And processing what on earth just happened in the previous nine days that led me to this point. Because there's always transformations that are constantly happening, whether big ones or small ones. And it's important to take that little time and space regularly to process and digest them, that it's even happened, right? And to kind of rest in a sense for that day. And I try to be quiet if possible, but I always feel that there is the sense of conquering on that day, the sense of feeling that hero within, which then propels the motivation to start again the next day with the power of practice. Because the power of practice, when you're starting it, it's really hard. I think the first chapter is the hardest of them all, right? And sometimes we might need to stay in that itself for a long time, right? And then we slowly move forward. But In any case, we have to celebrate that eternal victory and also to know then when we have our own personal victories that they are possible because of that presence of light, right? And because of that reality of light and the light is also representing knowledge again, right? So it's really just thank you for that light, right? Thank you to that eternal light of knowledge that sets us free. We have a prayer in the Vedic tradition, which basically goes in English, lead me from untruth to truth, from darkness to light, and from death to immortality. It's a really profound prayer. And I feel that that 10th day is basically living that prayer of, wow, we've journeyed here in some big or small way, We have moved from untruth to truth within ourselves. We have moved from some darkness to some more light. And now we have to celebrate that eternality of the light in order to fuel our fire to keep going, right? Because when we're making a lot of actions in the world, then we also do need to rest. We do need to come within and kind of calibrate on everything. And again, just, you know, feel that gratitude for what we have done, because when we're grateful to ourselves, too, it really helps when it's a genuine thing, right? That, oh, wow, I did that for for the greatest good of all, right? And I'll give myself a pat on the back when no one else may know about it, but I'm going to celebrate it. And that celebration puts me in a different state of, you know, happiness and joy from within that, again, is giving a cue to my gross body <laughs> of how we're going to be in this world, right? And and how we're going to approach things and just enjoying the process, you know, and, and having fun. But as far as writing the book goes, wow, those last two pages of the book, the celebrating the victory of light over darkness, there are so many tears involved there at the end. And I had read the audiobook of this book. And I'm like, I got through the whole thing and it's full of emotions and journeys from darkness to light. And i um, I was doing great. I was feeling energized. I was having a very different experience reading the audiobook than was what once what, what any of them have probably ever seen an author have, you know, in in their kind of uh normal sort of work, right? Usually you have a lot of playbacks that you have to do. You have to re-record it a few times and keep the vibrancy of the speech throughout. And it's hard. It's it's definitely tiring, but I was feeling energized by it. I was feeling like, wow, like it's so great to express this because my fifth chakra was actually very blocked before I started writing this book. And I believe that just living the book and practicing this book and writing this book and now being able to share about it and recording that audiobook was like hello power of expression <laughs> power of voice i am going to free you and free myself and and just celebrate it and do the thing that was you know forbidden to do or scary to do and so i'm like okay i got through the whole thing and now i'm going to try to get through these last two pages and okay just give me a moment you know cuz i really feel this so intensely. Right? And it's just like that, like, wow, this all really happened. And it is definitely a very deep chapter, because it brings it all kind of together full circle, and back to that light of the knowledge, which is symbolically residing in the center of the dance that we do in the Navratri festival, which is called the Garba dance. And garba is a Sanskrit word that means womb. And so it's a celebration of the womb of the Divine Mother, which allows us all to be born. And symbolically, it means going into that void of unknown darkness in order to give birth to the possibility of a new beginning, of healing, of growth, of transformation. And we can all go into that. And we all have that light Within us that power within us to give birth to something new in our lives and it just it just makes me so emotional though to think about it because I didn't understand it growing up why do we dance around a light in the center a flame in an earthen clay pot it didn't make any sense and we dance in a circle and and it's it's around this light and I'm like oh that light actually is so important it's so symbolic it's so Deeply profound to know that that light is representing the light of the soul and the light of that which is eternal and the light of that which can transcend all kinds of limitations, all kinds of fears, all kinds of emotions, all kinds of societal conditioning and scripts and connect us with our own true self. And it's like, wow, you know, just tremendous gratitude, tremendous Appreciation for everything, you know. So, yeah, that chapter—it's hard to even read it or to speak it without some tears coming. So, I really, you know, feel it. I feel everything, but that one's just like, pow
0: <laughs> Well, beautiful. It sounds like you're uh, you're embodying beautifully the the archetype of the goddess. So. Um... Ananta, thank you so much for coming on. We're we're, we're coming up on almost two hours. Um, so. Wow! Yeah, this is the <laughs> longest interview
1: I ever did.
0: <laughs> um, that was lovely. Thank you so much for for sharing and in, in your story and your knowledge and and, and bringing this idea of, of Ayurveda and and the the knowledge, the science of life to to the audience. If If people are interested in in your book or, or learning more about you, how or what is the best way of going about doing that?
1: Yeah, sure. So you could visit my organization's website, The Ancient Way co not dot com I couldn't get the dot com so I got the co <laughs> the ancient way.co. you can look up the book on any retailer you like to buy books from or at a bookstore it's called the way of the goddess daily rituals to awaken your inner warrior and discover your true self there's also a page of information about it on the ancient way website and people can also follow me on instagram or facebook at ananta dot one, which is A-N-A-N-T-A dot O-N-E. So one is spelled out.
0: Beautiful. Well, I'll, uh, I'll put a link to all of those in the show notes. And, uh, and again, thank you so much for coming on. And, um, is there anything you'd like to say in parting or you, you feel good uh, and, and complete with the interview?
1: I would like to say thank you for having me on your amazing show. It's been such a, a wonderful experience talking to you and thank you for such profound, insightful questions and for giving me the opportunity to see nature in Peru behind you. I've really enjoyed the view from where you are. <laughs> it feels so Ayurvedic. Yeah. I can't wait to come there one day.
0: Yeah, the sun is beginning to, to set here as well. And, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really happy to hear, I mean, we, we spoke a little bit about uh, New York. I, I lived there for many years, too, and it, it's a special oh, okay. place. It but, is. Uh, I'm glad yeah. you, you celebrated the, the the small victory of moving to, uh, to the free state of Florida. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that was a great victory. That was like the way I described that was in New York. I lived in the womb of Goddess Kalaratri, who represents the power of truth to free us from illusions and dispel darkness. And it's intense. It's it's like a really, really intense goddess who is riding a donkey, has disheveled hair, is like holding weapons that have blood on them. And she ends up having to drink the blood of the demons to be able to stop them from multiplying. So that was the kind of intensity I wrote this book with in New York City during the pandemic alone. And then I'm like, this was incredible. It's time to live out the next chapter now. And the next chapter of the book, chapter eight, is the power of rejuvenation, being close to nature, being like an innocent child again, having a sense of wonderment, awe, innocence, wonderment, joy. And I'm like, I got to just live there. So I got to go to Florida now just to balance this life experience out with a new chapter. So yeah, it felt kind of like I'm going to live in the womb of the next goddess now who's the eight-year-old girl and I'm really happy here so (laughs) it was a big big victory actually (laughs) big progression from one to the other but you know chapter seven is very important so I will be visiting New York uh for different things related to the book and work and a lot of great friends and community there so I also consider it home. And I did cry a lot on the plane from New York to Florida. Part of it was just relief, though. Whew, thank goodness (laughs) I don't have to live in this chapter anymore (laughs) all the time. (laughs) Too much intensity, right? It's like, then you really need that rejuvenation, so...
0: Wonderful, Ananda. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. And uh, yeah, really, thank you for coming on. And, and I wish you the best. And um, and when the show comes out, I'll, I'll let you know. And uh, I, I hope it's a success for you.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I really, truly appreciate it. And I hope to meet you one day <clears throat> on That'd your travels. Wonderful. Yeah, or if I get to come to South America, which I would love to. It would be fun to come check out your retreat center and... All the plants in your area.
0: Beautiful. Okay, everyone. That's it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ananta. Uh, It was a pleasure for me to have her on and share about area beta, yoga vedanta just a lot of the philosophy and and um and realities behind it so uh, i hope you all enjoyed that um as always if you're able to support this show that's a really big help to me patreon's a really beautiful option you can sign up uh, for as little as a dollar month it gives you some really nice added benefits things like early access to shows bonus material q a's um, to all the people who have done that to all the patrons as always thank you very much for your support and if you are able to do that, thank you in advance. If you're not able to do that, as always, some of the small things, if you're listening to this on YouTube, hitting the subscribe button, uh, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, that really helps with the algorithms. And if you're listening to this uh, with the audio version, whether it's on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, uh, subscribing or following the show and leaving a starred rating and a short review is also really a big help. So to everyone who's done that, thank you very much. Um, I think, as I mentioned in the beginning, in the introduction, uh, I have a few really interesting guests coming on, Uh, a lady named uh, Rosa, who's a Peruvian microbiologist who's doing some really uh, interesting research in one of the boiling rivers of the uh, Peruvian Amazon and uh, discovering a lot of microbial life, which, um, much like we talked about in this interview, there's a direct relationship between the the microbiome and the the macrobiome, so... I think she's uh, doing some really good work and discovering some really interesting things. Um, I have a guy, Thomas Fryman, coming on who has done a lot of plant medicine work. I think he just finished his PhD at Columbia and also just worked with the Buiti, uh, the Iboga tradition. So that should be a really interesting conversation. And then uh, another lady named uh, Bettina, I believe her last name is Fisher, I haven't interviewed her yet, uh, but she's a very fascinating woman um, and, and I think has a lot of uh, really interesting knowledge to share. So those are the next three guests coming up, um, and I think that's it. So uh, I hope everyone's doing well. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you for the support, and I will see you all in the next episode.